All right, well, everybody, welcome to Masterclass Theology. We are about to start our series now in, in the book of Second Peter. Uh, my name is Professor D, a.k.a. Mick, and let's open up with a word of prayer. Our Father, we, we humble ourselves before you, praising you and thanking you because you are a good God. You are a great God. You are sovereign. We thank you that our salvation was not an afterthought, but it was your plan all along. You knew we would sin. You knew we would fall. You knew how weak we would be. And yet Jesus said, I'm going to go ahead with creation. Let's do this. Let's create man in our own image. And even though mankind will fall, I will go and I will suffer and I will rescue them. And we will have fellowship with man. And we thank you for that. We thank you for your word. Such a wonderful gift that you've given us. And I pray that through your revelation here, which is your word, and through the Holy Spirit who indwells each and every one of us here who believes in you, that you will speak to our hearts and our minds and engage us on a deep level. Thank you for everything. And this time is yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to dive into Second Peter chapter 1, and we're going to do the whole chapter. For these next three lessons we're going to be doing complete chapters so we're going to we're going to cover quite a bit of territory here and i will begin by reading uh the chapters i usually do and then we'll start unpacking it uh after the reading for those who want to know i'm reading from the nasb this time around usually i read the esv niv jump around but this time i'm going to use the nasb so um Second Peter chapter 1, and it starts like this. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. For his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Through these he has granted us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world on the account of lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For these qualities are yours and are increasing. They do not make you useless nor unproductive in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the one who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choice of you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the kingdom, into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. 
I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that laying that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such a declaration as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we, are, and we ourselves heard this declaration made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture becomes a matter of someone's own interpretation. For prophecy was ever made for I'm sorry, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And to that we say, Amen. Tonight's lesson we're gonna we're, we've uh, titled Effort. Now let's just dive right in. Simon Peter, bond servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Unlike First Peter, here, here he identifies himself by his both names, Simon Peter. Uh, in First Peter, he just goes by Peter, but here he also adds the term uh, bond servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. In Second Peter uh, one sixteen and eighteen, we will see that he is an eyewitness. So this Peter that we're talking about is that Peter, the Apostle Peter, the famous Peter who one moment says to Jesus, you are the, the Christ, and whom Jesus in the next moment has to say, get behind me, Satan. It's that same Peter. Okay, uh, So we know him to be the eyewitness, and as we saw in verse 18, we ourselves heard. So he was there. To those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, to those... In other words, to his audience, to to the people he's writing to. We know this to be the same audience from 1 Peter because in 2 Peter 3.1, he mentions a a previous letter. So we know that he must be writing to the same Gentile Christians who are now the exiles in Asia Minor, people that were kicked out of their homelands, of their homes, and now live in in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. He talks here about the same kind of faith as ours. So ours could be referring to to Jews, Jewish Christians, or the apostles. Any of those fits. The idea is, what he's saying is, the same faith that we have is the same faith that you Gentile Christians have. Our faith is not superior to yours. Yours is not inferior to ours. It's the same faith. And we also see this in the Jerusalem Council when Peter is talking in Acts chapter 15 when he's explaining that, that Gentile Christians are just as, as accepted by God as Jewish Christians were and everything in between. He says, we got the gift of the Spirit this way on the day of Pentecost. They got the same gift of the Spirit 
on a different day. So it's the same faith, no less. The faith that we have today as Christians, as Gentile Christians, as 21st century Christians, is no less than the same faith of the apostles. By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The terms God and Savior here refers to the same person, Jesus Christ. The Greek construction of this phrase has only one article. And this is really important because that means that this is talking about the same person. Sometimes when we read these things, and I think we automatically do this just because of what we already know. We read it, God and Jesus. So we think usually God the Father and Jesus. Because more often than not, when you see the pairing of God and Jesus, it's usually talking about God the Father and Jesus. Not so in this particular case. This is one of those unique instances where it is telling you that Jesus is God and Savior. This is what, perhaps the clearest statement in the New Testament calling Jesus Christ God. The New Testament calls Jesus Christ God throughout, but this is one of the clearest statements. I want to make sure that, that I'm, I'm clear about that. It's not, this is not the only time we're saying that Jesus Christ is God. There are other passages that, that talk about the deity of Jesus, but this is definitely one of the clearest, if not the clearest. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Grace and peace. I'll, I'll share this real quick. Even in this greeting, there is so much theological depth to it. Peace must always be preceded by grace. You cannot know real peace, real shalom, unless you know the grace of God. So even in this greeting, you have such theological depth here. And it says the knowledge of God. The word knowledge here is important. I'm going to give you guys a sneak preview. This book is going to be dealing with the topic of false teachers. So knowledge is very important when combating heresies from false teachers. But in the Greek, the actual word used here for knowledge is epinosis. And we see that word epinosis here in one, right here in 1-2. We're going to see it again in verse 3. We're going to see it again in verse 8. And we're going to see it again in chapter 2, verse 20. This word gets used a lot in this book. This word and, and variations on the, on, on the word knowledge. Okay? So, but this specific word epinosis appears in these instances that I mentioned. And what it means is, it means correct and precise knowledge. It means intimate knowledge. It's the difference between knowing about something versus really knowing it, really being acquainted with it. That's the difference. Verse 3, for his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. In other words, we have everything we need to live a Christian life through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own grace and excellence. Again, that, that phrase there, true knowledge, I don't know why they didn't put true knowledge in the earlier verse. It's the same word, but that's basically the sense of it. True knowledge, complete knowledge, intimate knowledge, personal knowledge, truth knowledge of him, referring to God, who called us. Once again, Peter constantly emphasizes the importance of the sovereignty of God in our election. Something that probably would not stand out to us, but stood out to probably the, the original readers of this, 
is that word granted to us. That phrase granted to us. That phrase granted to us only appears in the New Testament twice in this book and once in Mark 15.45. And I ask you, why would that be an important thing to share with you guys? Twice here and once in Mark 15.45. The reason why that is important is because it also helps to corroborate the fact that this was indeed written by Peter. Mark, after all, where do you think he got his, his material from? From Peter. And as, and as we saw in our last lesson in, in 1 Peter chapter 5, Mark was one of the names that, that Peter talked about in, in his closing. It's that same Mark. So, the fact that Mark uses the same phrase that Peter uses here, and these are the only instances in the New Testament, I think makes a very strong case that, yeah, our boy Peter the Apostle wrote this. Through these, he has granted us, again, this is the second time where it's mentioned here, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Promises, the promises, as we remember, are... The, that we can have a relationship with God. That is part of the promise, that we would have a relationship with God, that we would have eternal life, and that he would reward us in the new, in the new world to come. These are some of the promises that Peter's alluding to, and we saw these in chapter 1 of uh, the, his first letter. Okay, and he, This word partakers is the same word we, most of us are, are familiar with the word Kononia, which means fellowship or kenosis, something along those lines. It's a variation on that. And, and it's talking about that we get to be partners with, with God of this divine nature. We get to share in this divine nature because of these promises. So whatever Jesus has, he's usually referred to in the New Testament as the firstborn. We're going to get what Jesus has. The Bible teaches that we are co-heirs with Jesus. Jesus is the firstborn. He is the heir, and we are the co-heirs. We get to share. We get to have this fellowship, a fellowship that can only take place if something like that epinosis is a thing. In other words, that deep, intimate, relational knowledge. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world on account of lust. Every time the New Testament writers talk about our salvation, and Peter does no less. He mentions that we are saved from something and we are saved for something better. So we have escaped the corruption. The world, what does the world mean? When he's talking here about the world, he's not talking about the literal planet Earth, although it includes the planet Earth. But what he's really talking about here is life since the curse. Life since, since Genesis 3 happened. Life under the curse and under the brokenness of sin. So when he talks about world, he's talking about life as we know it now. Lust. The word lust is the word desire. So are all desires evil then? What makes a desire evil? What generally makes a desire evil is not the desire itself, but how you go about obtaining it. How you go about obtaining that desire. 
When God makes things, he also makes them for a purpose. And we are to use them within the purposes that he has designed and ordained for. Sex is great. I highly recommend it. But I recommend it if you're married. Okay? If you're not married, do not engage. Sex is great when it's monogamous. One man with one woman. I do not recommend it outside of marriage or with multiple partners. You see, that's what makes the desire wrong when, when you use it outside of work, what God wants us to use it for. So desires in and of themselves are, are, are not wrong, but when, when, when those sort of things come into play, they become wrong. Verse 5, now for this very reason, also applying all diligence in your faith. I mentioned earlier that we, we called this lesson effort. Applying all diligence. In other translations, I know the NIV does this for sure, and I, and I believe some of the other ones I've read as well. It says, make every effort. There is an effort that needs to come from us. For this very reason, because God, the reason being is that because God has called us, as we saw earlier, God has called us. He chose us for salvation. In other words, we are already completely saved because of God. Nothing to do with us. It says supply moral excellence. So this word supply, in other translations, it says add, supplement. So we have to ask, if our salvation is already complete, what exactly are we adding to here? Faith comes from God in the form of a gift. And we know this especially because of Ephesians 2.8. Faith is a seed that God gives to, to we who are saved. Faith is a seed that God gives to the saved. Faith is not salvation itself. My faith is not my salvation. My faith is connected to my salvation. But my faith is not my salvation. My salvation is, is God's gift, God's grace. That's the salvation. Along with faith, God provides us other things as well. He provides us soil. He provides us time. He provides us water, opportunities, etc. So for faith to grow... Faith as our seed to grow, it needs to be planted. If you have a seed and you held it in your hand, is it going to do anything? What's it going to do? If you have it in your pocket, is, your, is, that, is that seed going to do anything? And, I, and I, I can see that the answer here from all your guys' nods is no. That, that seed is not going to do anything. That seed needs to be, to be planted. Okay? Now, let's suppose that I just water that seed, but I don't plant it. I don't put it in, in the ground. Is it going to do anything? Yeah, it might do something, but not, not, nothing worth sus sustaining. I mean, I've seen seeds where if you start watering, they start growing, but because there's no soil, therefore it's not getting any of the nutrients it needs, it dies right away. So faith is a seed that, that needs to be planted. It needs to be watered. Another component of that is giving it time. When you plant a seed, does it grow the next day? Is it like Jack and the Beanstalk? No. It takes time. It takes time. It, it, and it needs space to grow. So what he's talking about here is he's talking about growing our faith. 
Because faith is connected to our salvation. Moral excellence. It's also translated as virtue and goodness. I like to see this more, I'm going to kind of flip it to the negative. It's like, to have moral excellence means that we don't have to be slaves to sin anymore. In Romans 6.16, it says that we're slaves to the one we obey. So we don't want to do that. We want to obey what God wants us to do. We want to do the good that God wants us to do. Going back to Ephesians 2, 8, 8 and 9. For we were created to do good, good works. Okay, We're not saved because of the good works. We were created to do them. That is our purpose, to do good works. And in your moral excellence, virtue, goodness, he goes, add knowledge. Now, the word knowledge here is different from the first two instances we saw earlier. Same basic uh, root word, but, but it's different here. When we saw it earlier, it was epinosis. It has that little prefix before it, which means, again, true, complete you know, knowledge. Here's just gnosis. In other words, this has to do with, with the things that we learn with time, the things that we learn with experience, you know, trivial things that we learn along the way. We have to add this to our to our virtues. And in your knowledge, self-control. What self-control means is to do things in moderation. It means to not be controlled by, by desires. So here's the thing. We were talking about desires earlier. Once desires control us, desires in, in and of themselves are not bad. But once they control us, they become an evil thing. So if you're not doing it in moderation, if you're not doing it correctly, and if this thing is controlling you, it's an evil desire. I can have, and I'm careful because I'm the ministry leader in Celebrate Recovery, but I'm not in Celebrate Recovery for a drinking problem. I'm in it for other reasons. But you know, speaking here, I can have a drink. I can have a beer with my meal or, or, or a glass of wine with my meal. That is... My craving that is not a bad thing. What makes it bad is if one becomes 12, you get what I'm saying? That becomes a problem. There's nothing wrong with, 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 with most of our desires if we buy stuff. But my buying cannot lead me to being irresponsible. My buying cannot lead me to bankruptcy nor my buying should not take me away from generosity. There's nothing wrong with me buying stuff for myself so long as it doesn't interfere with generosity. And it doesn't master me. And in your self-control, perseverance. Perseverance means to be able to press forward in spite of adversity. I mean, why else would you need perseverance if, it, if there wasn't any adversity? So it's, the, it's, it's about pressing forward, holding on to holiness, especially in the face of temptation. And in your perseverance, we add godliness. Godliness, also translated as piety, in simple terms, practical faith, faith in practice. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. This is the word Philadelphia, which most of us are familiar with because brotherly kindness means brotherly love. 
kindness and consideration. That's what it's talking about here, towards others. You guys want to remember it in, in just two words? The golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Kindness and consideration. Brotherly love. And in your brotherly kindness, love. Now, love here is the word agape. And agape is the highest love. It's, it's God's brand of love. It, it is willful. It is intentional. And it is sacrificial. This is the love that it's talking about. The qualities listed above, if you've noticed this, they move from things that happen within us to things that are manifested outside of us. It's a pretty cool list when you, when you think about it. It's stuff that starts from the inside and works its way out. Verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they do not make you useless nor unproductive in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I forgot to, I neglected to mention this earlier. But one of the things that has been going on here, as we, we pointed out earlier, that Peter makes one of the clearest statements in, in, the, in the Bible about Jesus being God. But besides doing that, he is con continuously saying, Lord Jesus or Lord Jesus Christ. He's really hammering the, that point across. That Jesus is God. And the reason that word Lord is important is because it is that word that is used when, when, when they didn't want to use the name of God in, in, in the Old Testament. You, you know, you've noticed in your Bibles it says Lord with a translation of that word. That's what they're doing here. So he's constantly calling Jesus Lord because he really wants to drive that point across to us. Jesus is God. True knowledge, the epinosis is knowing that Jesus is God. If you're going to have a relationship, you got to know he's God. Oh, he's a great moral teacher. Nope, he's God. Okay, we can't settle for anything less. Because if we think anything less of Jesus, that he was just this great man, then, then we've missed the mark. True knowledge has to, has to include the fact that Jesus is God. Okay, and it says that if we don't have this, says we can't grow in, 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 the, in our true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we need these qualities to grow. And they should be growing in us. See, the problem with a lot of Christians is they have this seed, but they've got it in their pocket or somewhere. The thing is that it's not about you keeping the seed in your pocket. you got to do something with the seed. I think about like... When our kids gave us gifts, those of us who are parents, they brought us gifts, and they're happy when they give us these gifts. Or, and it's kind of like, yeah, thanks, Junior, for giving me this gift, but it was my money. I mean, that's what God is doing with us. Now, there's the kid that you give the money, the parents, the mom gives the money to the kid, go buy your dad something. And that kid will go to the store, and as soon as he walks in, he... He sees the candy aisle. He forgets why he went there and instead buys the candies for himself. You see, and that's kind of how salvation, faith is for, not for, for, for all of us here. God has given us this faith. What are we going to do with it? We have to do something with this faith that God has given us. 
So we already have salvation, because that's why we've been given faith, because we have salvation. So now we got to do something with this faith that God has given us. And, the, and what we need to do is we got to make an effort. It is an effort to grow. We don't want to be useless nor unproductive. See, the enemy, there's nothing he can do to us now in sense of making us lose our salvation. But he can make us ineffectual. And that's big for him because making us ineffectual means it's that many more people who won't be exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That many people who won't know Jesus is Lord. And we're going to talk about another thing that happens when, 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 when we're being useless and ineffective. Verse 9. For the one who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Forgotten. That's an important word because we're going to see later Peter talking about remembering. And the reason why is because the only way to combat forgetting is by remembering. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world on account of lust. That was from, from verse 4. So you see, we, they forgot that this is what we escaped from. We escaped from that corruption. I was saved from sin. I'm going to call sin crap. I was saved from crap. Just to make it sound a little you know, more effective here. Why am I going to return to crap? I was saved from crap. I was saved from danger. It's called sin danger. Why am I going to return to danger? It's called stupidity. I was saved from stupidity. Why am I going to return to stupidity? That's what we do when we forget and we don't remember where God has pulled us from. It's like going in a circle. You're trying to go from, from point A to point B, but because you forget your route, you, you end up back in point A. And the idea is to move beyond point A to get to point B. Once again, saved from something for something better. Kent constantly hammers this, and he's going to say this in, in, later in this chapter, that, that he, he's going to willfully and deliberately remind us. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent. Once again, make every effort to make certain about his calling and choice of your life. And this is the other thing I was talking about. Besides being uh, ineffectual as a Christian, what happens is when your faith is not growing, you start doubting. So another benefit of a growing faith is it provides added assurance. It doesn't take away, it doesn't mean that if you start doubting your salvation, because you, I'll give you guys an example. John the Baptist, and mind you, John the Baptist was not in a, in a sin situation, but he was arrested. He, he was about to be executed. We know that. He saw the writing on the wall. Remember what he did? Do you guys remember what John the Baptist did? He sent some of his disciples to Jesus to ask him, are you the one? Now, mind you, he's not in a sin situation. Imagine, so this is a good, godly man under in, in an intense situation. Now, imagine if you're a Christian who is not living very faithful. You're not growing your faith. You're going to start doubting your salvation. That was me 
for the better part of my, of my 30s. I turned my back on God. God is faithful to me. Romans 8 came back to me 10 years later to my mind that nothing can separate me from the love of God. But for a good decade and plus one, I was not following God. And I started to really doubt my salvation. I thought I'd lost my salvation. This is what happens when you don't live faithful. There's a lot of Christians who sadly are characterized by this. Now, there are people who are not saved and thought, you know, went through the motions, but they were never really saved. It's hard for us to tell. The important thing is for, for us to know about our salvation and that God saved us. So we want that assurance. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Now, the idea here is not that you won't actually fall, but it's, it's basically that you are in, in an upward trajectory. You are moving forward. When you stumble, you get back up. It's the idea that you're not going to... To stay down. Scripture assures us that we are saved. First, by knowledge. Remember, it talks about that true epinosis, that true knowledge. And second, it gives us these metrics. Metrics help. When you, when, when, for those of us who are parents, again, when we have a child, we, when we visit the pediatrician, they measure to see how tall he or she's growing. They have an idea by, by the, how, how, how much, how heavier they're, how much heavier they're getting. Okay, they're growing okay. Oh, he's a little on the short side. He might have a growth spurt later. But if they start noticing certain things, and this is how they become aware if a kid is deaf or if a kid is blind, because they start noticing, hey, these things aren't developing. We have metrics that help us to determine development and growth, right? And it's the same way in the spiritual life. There are metrics that help us determine our growth. Those, those qualities that we mentioned earlier. It starts from within and it comes out. If it's not happening within, it's not going to come out. So God uses both of these things, scripture, knowledge, and, and the metrics, in the life of the believers to assure us of our salvation. Efforts, remember, make every effort, are the result of salvation. They're not the cause of salvation, but they are the result of salvation. Verse 11. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. I'm going to read another verse that I think goes really greater. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you. I want to emphasize that. Even though he's telling us to work out our salvation, and this is uh, this is Paul now, for it is God who works in you. Our efforts is God working in us. Both to, to will and to work for his good pleasure. And that's from Philippians 2. 12 and 13. So Paul writes the same thing that Peter's writing about here. Peter says, make every effort with all diligence. Paul states it as work out your salvation. But they both emphasize that this is a work of God. Salvation is a work of God. 
growth falls on us. Your mom can feed you food, but if you don't eat it, whose fault is that? And then when you, when you don't grow to the height that you could have grown to, whose fault is that? When you're not as strong as you could have been, whose fault is that? So there, growth is a responsibility that God has given to us. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though, once again, Peter there, remind, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. The constant emphasis of Peter about remembering, reminding, and not forgetting. I consider it right, verse 13, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir up, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. Once again, this is such a cool passage because it also reemphasizes that this is Peter talking here. So he knows that his death is imminent. Let's face it. You can see when, when, when the political climate is, is going on. He's in, he's in Rome. He's in the epicenter of all of this. And he's, he's already seeing what Nero is doing. So he knows his number's up. He knows it. So he's talking about this. But he, he also makes mention that, that Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus Christ, again, my God, Jesus Christ, has made it clear to me. For those of you guys keeping score, Jesus told John, I mean, I'm sorry, Jesus told Peter that he was going to die in John 21, 18, and 19. You guys remember that passage? And then Peter goes like, what about John? And Jesus is like, shut up, fool. I'm talking about you to you. Don't worry about John. Okay? And once again, the importance of reminders in the Christian life. 15. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. He knows that he is on his last legs speaking in the physical, earthly sense. So he wants to make sure that he leaves this, this legacy for us. So that when he's gone, which he's been gone for, for 2,000 years now, we who are here today, we're a testimony of the work that he's done. I want to remind you guys, we know of Jesus because of the apostles. Jesus was one man, sure, he was the God-man. But we know of him because of the work they did. We are the, the result of the ministry of the apostles. And, and especially for us who are, because we are Gentile Christians, the two apostles who we would most be, mostly be indebted to are Peter and Paul. Remember, Peter's the one that got the ball rolling in the house of Cornelius. And Paul's the one that basically became the apostle to the Gentiles. So we are beneficiaries of the work that these guys do. So Peter wants to make sure that we have this reminder from him. There's not a lot of things that Peter wrote. Obviously, he's got a very small corpus of scripture written, recorded, that he actually hand wrote or, or dictated. But we have more things. For instance, his sermons are recorded in the book of Acts. For instance, one of the things with John the Apostle is the only thing we have from John is 
what he wrote in the Gospel of John and his, his epistles, but we really don't even know John's voice because there's not a whole lot recorded of John's teaching ministry. But in Peter's case, we have an abundance of information compared to a, pretty much any of the other apostles. Eyewitnesses. Verse 16, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were, what? Eyewitnesses of his majesty. In other words, we saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives a great explanation on this. Read this on your own. Okay? And 1 John 1, he also writes, we were eyewitnesses. We we. We heard him. We touched him. We interacted with Jesus. When there were people saying that Jesus was not a real flesh and blood person, John wrote, uh, yes, he was. Yes, he was. Verse 17. For when he, for, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such a declaration as this was made to him by the, by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this declaration made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. There was another time where, where this was said during his baptism. But the, here's the thing. John the Apostle and Peter weren't, weren't there for that one. John the Baptist was there for that one, but these guys weren't. So when he, And here he, he, he mentions clearly that this is on a mountain. We all know from Mark 9, 1 through 8, and, and, and the other gospel accounts that, that, that talk about it, that it's talking about the transfiguration. And as far as further really big events that they saw of Jesus in, in Acts chapter 1, 9, you know, I remember uh, when I was a kid, Superman the movie was a big thing, and the big poster that was around was, you know, promoting the Superman movie, you'll believe that a man can fly. Well, in Acts chapter 1, 9, they saw a man fly because it says that he was ascended into heaven. So, sorry, Superman. Jesus beat you to it. And so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. The prophetic word. I'm going to get to that in a minute. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture becomes a matter of someone's own interpretation. In other words, it, it doesn't matter what our subjective feeling is about it, our opinion. What matters is the truth and the fact that God revealed something here. For no prophecy has ever was ever made by an act of human will. You can't make this stuff up. But men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. Peter talks about this, especially in, in 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 12, where it talks about that the holy men of God, they were writing these things, and they were like, man, when are, when, when are, when are these things going to happen? When is this Messiah going to come? When is he going to go through these sufferings? When is he going to go through all this? They were like, there was that anticipation that these guys that were writing in the Old Testament, the prophets that were writing in the Old Testament, they knew what they were writing, but they never got to see it. We did. Or, or we didn't see it, but, but we live in the aftermath of it. Peter got to see it. 
we live in the aftermath of it. There's a there's a still a pro a cooler thing about being in the aftermath than being in the before because now it's like now you know what's going to happen because it already happened once. It's kind of like you don't know if something's going to happen until you see something happen along those lines. And so the prophets in the Old Testament they had faith it was going to happen, but there's a difference between having faith that it's going to happen where we get to have faith because we we know it happened. The spirit in them was indicating. In 2 Timothy 3, uh, yeah, 3.16, it says that all scripture is God-breathed. So the Holy Spirit is communicating these things to them. So this information, this knowledge, is going to be a big clue as to the fact that Peter's going to be hitting the topic of the false teachers really hard in these next following two chapters. Okay, so we're setting things up here. But even as it were, man, we got a lot of good content here just even from this first chapter. So uh, this has been Masterclass Theology. Thanks for listening and God bless.